Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action. I'm Randall Hayes. We interrupted our conversation with Barbara Oakley for a couple of weeks, and I want to get back to that after quick comment. Barbara asked me to cut all the political stuff because I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon. I did cut most of the political stuff. But I want to take a moment to celebrate curmudgeons, those cranky bastards who say what they think, whether it's popular or not. I like curmudgeons. Some of my best friends are curmudgeons. I even like the word. I like the way it sounds. Curmudgeon. And I'll admit she doesn't sound like a curmudgeon, shouting at kids to get out of her yard. She sounds all sweet and grandmotherly. But don't let that fool you. She's very tough on people's ideas even those of people she likes and admires, like Simon Baron Cohen, as you'll hear. So I'm going to call her a curmatron, rather than a curmudgeon. This week we'll be talking more specifically about her latest pair of books. You'll recall that her first book on this issue, Evil Genes, was about people who are completely selfish, so selfish that they tend to shoot themselves in the foot They get these short-term benefits from screwing people over, but they almost always wreck any long-term relationships, and they can be completely oblivious to the process of how that happens. They think they're right. Well, now she's looking at the flip side of that coin with a pair of books. The first is an academic tome called Pathological Altruism, in which academics address the idea that there can actually be too much goodness, that people are sometimes not selfish enough. As you'll hear, this is not a popular idea. One, you're going to be surprised, but one of the hardest things to do, I ended up, I, I asked a number of experts on altruism to write about altruism, uh, pathological altruism. I figured, you know, who best to write about the pathological sides of altruism than an expert in altruism? That was the group of people that simply could not write about pathological altruism. I got several chapters, but I had to reject them because they didn't, they just wrote about altruism. I was like, wait a minute, that's been there, done that. This is a book about pathological altruism. But it was as if they couldn't even wrap their mind around the idea that uh, happy helping could create difficulty. So Um, did you talk to any Buddhists? Oh, yes. There's several uh, Buddhists. who have contributed to the volume. Um, Lynn O'Connor, uh, is, she's done a number of studies of Tibetan Buddhists, and her work relates to the idea that guilt, um, that your empathy and caring for others, if you're, especially if you're sort of naturally predisposed that way, um, can lead to um, your feeling a sense of, uh, guilt and culpability for things that really aren't your fault. Um, and that can create real difficulties. So in some sense, it's like that's a, a sense of pathological altruism. You start taking on this responsibility for stuff that's not really your own. And Carolyn Zahn-Waxler and um, uh, her co-author also explored a very similar um, sort of area in that they 
they talked about how um, parents who are depressed themselves, children of those parents, can also they they can get the sense of that it's sort of their fault, and they should be trying to fix their parents, and they, they're trying to fix other people um, with problems that really aren't theirs to fix. Um, so it can create real difficulties. In fact, um, part of if you look, there are hundreds and hundreds of books out there on empathy, caring, kindness, and so forth. Um, and I, I really admire and respect Simon Berencon's work. But um, at the same time, he'll say things like, empathy is the universal solvent. It'll solve all problems. And that's the current sort of national mindset. Altruism and caring for others and empathy will solve all our problems. And in fact, that is most definitely and emphatically not true. From the old sort of folk Buddhism, there's a phrase called true compassion, you know, when helping actually is helping. And I think there's another phrase, I may not be remembering it correctly, called foolish compassion, where trying to help isn't helping. Yes. And, and that, go, you know, that can end up cutting both ways, where oh, yes. the person who's attempting to help is really just being selfish because um, I see this with parents a lot. I have a, a small child, and so I see this with parents who, who help their kids not because the kid needs help, but because the parent can't handle the stress of seeing their child being challenged. Oh, yes. That, that's a, um, and that exactly is described in um, uh, Tanya Singer and Olga Klemecki's chapter about uh, burnout and, well, they call it empathic um, distress. People can react to another another's um, problems and feel real personal distress about that to, to the extent that they will um, not truly help in a way that's helping. They're just trying to help themselves. Or they, they can simply burn out. Um, of of a field because they're feeling this kind of internal distress. And this gets very close to the idea of um, there's a difference between empathy and compassion, at least as far as, you know, everybody can define terms in different ways. But empathy means you feel the same thing that the other person is feeling. That sounds great, right? You, you can share the feelings, and so that allows you to react and help them. But uh, I had a student in one of my classes, and she um, finally I got a note from one of her she, or from her uh, sent in by one of her friends, and she had always just throughout this class she'd been, which was on pathological altruism, she'd been just as cold as ice and, and not really focused. And I got this note and it said, "I'm sorry, I can't be in class today. I, I my my um, brother tried to commit suicide last night." So. Um, so I uh, wrote her a little note and said, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I took a bit of a risk, but I had been getting other signals that told me this was a pretty good risk to take. And I just wrote her and said, maybe it's time that you apply some of the ideas of this class as far as your relationship with your brother. And so then we were gone the next week, you know, over spring break, and I was like a little trepidatious. I came back, and it was as if an entirely new woman walked in that door. She was fresh, alive, vibrant. And, of course, we got to talking, and she said, that email changed my life. She began to realize at that time that 
she had been so empathizing with her brother and his depression that she'd become depressed herself, and she had decided she was going to drop out of school. She was going to move in ostensibly to help her brother. Obviously, she wasn't helping her brother. I mean, he, he ended up trying to commit suicide. Um, and, and so instead of helping her brother out of the pit by feeling compassion for him without sharing the same feelings, she'd climbed right down in that pit with him and was uh, wallowing in misery, um, which people hate to hear that kind of thing. It's like, oh, my God, are you telling her she shouldn't have helped her brother and so forth? Not at all. But there's a difference. I mean, clearly she had become deeply dysfunctional by her misguided efforts in thinking that by sharing exactly the same feelings as her brother, she was helping him, but she wasn't. Um, and so I think all of these kinds of things tie into the idea that that there can be pathologies of altruism. Our attempts to help um, can actually make the whole situation worse. And cl- I saw that crystal clear with the the study of this this case study of a, a killing in Utah. That killing is the subject of the second book, Cold-Blooded Kindness, which is a true crime story set in the small towns of Mormon, Utah. A well-known and talented local artist named Carol Alden shot her drug-addicted ex-convict of a husband in what she claimed was self-defense. So Barbara started this project hoping to find a poster child for codependence, a tragedy of pathological altruism. When she got beyond trading letters with Carol Alden in jail to checking the facts on the ground, however, things kind of shifted on her. In fact, there's there's some evidence she's a serial killer. Uh, she would take in these men who were deeply dysfunctional, and then they would die, uh, sometimes under very mysterious circumstances. And it was always she was planning to help them. But I do want to make it clear, in that particular... But it's almost, it's almost like the Venus flytrap. Oh, yes. Or a and sundew. It, yes, I have I have this delicious nectar that will help you, but it's also quite she, sticky. <laughs> and people would buy into that. But the worst thing, the thing is, she was not the pathological altruist. We are the pathological altruists because we buy into this con woman's stories about how she's helping others. And in fact, science itself buys into this kind of con behavior. And what do I mean by that? Uh, Lenore Walker devised the syndrome of battered woman syndrome. And this was going to be used by Carol Alden to protect herself, that she had this horrible horrible husband who had sort of brainwashed her and done all these terrible things to her. And and the reality was she was known as the queen of sadomasochism of Salt Lake City. She, She was a deeply disturbed and dysfunctional person. And this guy left her because he he couldn't take it anymore. He had actually moved out, and she went and got him and dragged him back the day she killed him. So, While he was but, passed out drunk in the road, right? Exactly right. But then she was going to use this battered woman defense. Well, if you go look at the science behind battered woman defense, there really isn't any. Lenore Walker, the divisor of this defense, 
she did a study some 30 years ago of 400 battered women and concluded that battered women are are normal and they just had the bad luck to fall in with a you know a really a battering guy a nasty person so you might ask okay so what's the control group on these 400 battered women how could you draw that conclusion as what she had no control group she she had only the 400 battered women who she had selected, right? So it wasn't a, a standard selection. And then she had no standard control group against which to compare them. And I asked her about that, and she said, you know, in the last 30 years, she has not been able to find 400 non-battered women to use as a control group. And this is what legislation in states across the nation have based their battered woman defense on, which is no science at all. So these are what I'm talking about when I talk about pathologies of altruism. How could this happen in science? Well, because nobody wants to say anything because it might be perceived as being against battered women. No one seems to care about the children that go back to these often deeply dysfunctional women. Well, certainly a dude cannot say that. A woman might be able to and get away with it, but yeah. uh, that's, that's another case of, in a sense, it depends on who you are. Yep. You, and you, you might be what? able to get away with saying that. I probably couldn't. Yep. And see, that, that is wrong. That's dead wrong. And people suffer as a result. Kids suffer as a result. Well, and that's, that's one of the things that, uh, that doing all this sort of evolution reading and work has, has taught me is that humans are not rational. We are, we are deeply emotional creatures who kind of think rationally once in a while about certain things. But the way that, uh, the way that a philosopher or a logician would define rationality, humans don't do that. <laughs> Boy, you are so right. I mean, this brings me back to that whole idea of um, certain groups of people being very high empathizers and very high systemizers. The problem that you have there is you don't know which comes first. The more I go, and of course this brings me back to myself as well, because if I'm high on empathizing and I'm high on systemizing, then how do I know that I don't make a decision on an emotional basis and then plaster all this rationality on top to, to make it look like my emotional de decision is justified? And I think that is so incredibly common. The only way you can get rid of it is to have someone who is not an empathizer but is high on systemizing to look over what you're doing. Seeing as how October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I think I need to break in here to expand on something that my clumsy editing of this interview may have obscured. Barbara was pretty clear that she's looking to reduce the incidence of family violence overall. She simply believes, and I'm sure she'll call me on it if I'm putting words in her mouth, is that both sides of that equation must be addressed. A supply-side strategy by itself will be no more effective with domestic violence than it is with the drug trade. After all, Carol Alden found her lovers slash victims in prison. The issue is that humans love blame. We find it emotionally very difficult to fix a problem without wanting to punish the person who we've identified as causing that problem. 
game theory models of human behavior don't really take into account accidents or entropy or ignorance. Anything that goes wrong is by definition a betrayal of some sort. And betrayals that go unpunished just lead to future betrayals. So those social parts of our brain demand a scapegoat. There's a scapegoat society in England that's trying to change these behaviors. Their website is at www.scapegoat.demon.co.uk. I wish them luck, but I'm going with the assumption that this is both nature and nurture, so it's going to be very difficult to change. Scapegoat used to be an actual goat, by the way, sent out into the wilderness on Yom Kippur with the people's sins of the year laid on its horned head by the local priest. Leviticus 16, 8, 10, and 26, linked from our page. I like that website because it shows the variability of the same verse across the many different versions of the Bible. Religion is actually a very good example of the basic principles of evolution. Variation, selection, inheritance. That's all the time we have for this week, except for a quick memorial to a giant of radio I had never heard of before today. Norman Corwin, who died this week in Los Angeles at the age of 101. Bob Edwards interviewed him in 2005 and replayed that interview, in which I recognized a source of many of the comics I read as a kid. BSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, with editing help from Lauren Branch at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. Check the Facebook page, click like, and thanks for listening.